Welcome to Outspoken Voices, a podcast by and for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer parents, people with LGBTQ parents, future parents, and everyone else who is part of our family journeys. I'm your host, Emily McGranahan, and I am the Director of Family Engagement with Family Equality Council. Today, I am excited to dive into a topic that impacts and enriches the lives of many LGBTQ families, transracial foster care and adoption. So to really kind of start the conversation, let's look at the numbers. There are almost half a million children in the U.S. foster care system, about 100,000 of whom are available for adoption right now. Over half of children in foster care are children of color. States are required to recruit foster and adoptive parents who mirror the population of the children in care. And we know from research that more than a third of same-sex couples raising children are racial and ethnic minorities. We also know that same-sex couples are more likely than different-sex couples to foster and adopt. Seven states have passed religious exemption laws permitting adoption and foster care agencies to discriminate against LGBTQ children and youth in their care, as well as LGBTQ potential parents. So all of this reflects this reality. LGBTQ people and their children are of all different races and ethnicities, and we're seeing real threats to youth and families uh, within the foster care and adoption system. It's a really timely conversation uh, and part of our community that we're talking about today. So here with me to talk about their own experiences in transracial adoptive families and the importance of seeking out community and identity are Johnny Cole and Nate Peterson. Johnny Cole is with me today in the studio and back on the podcast for a second time. So welcome. Uh, Johnny got his MAT at the State University of New York at Cortland and his BS at Boston University. Johnny is a proud member of an interracial family built with love with his husband and their two adopted, adopted kids and three adopted cats. He is currently a high school administrator after spending more than a dozen years teaching English. Nate Peterson is joining us on the phone today. He was adopted in the early 90s, along with his younger brother by two men looking to start a family. A few years later, they adopted a little girl. And not stopping there, they adopted another little girl to complete this family of six. Nate and his siblings identify as African-American, and his fathers are Caucasian. To start us off, I'm going to ask each of you, how did your family meet? Can you kind of tell us your family story? So, Nate, I've heard you tell your story uh, a little bit at a workshop and a conference a few years ago, telling the story of meeting your dads for the first time. Would you share uh, some of that story now? Yes, of course. Um, well, back in the early 90s, um, there were two men looking to adopt little boys or little girls. And um, they had gone to something called a match party. And the way the match parties would work out, it would be um, little groups of uh, kids that were looking to be adopted would go to these events, and they'd be like parties at like maybe um, uh, a playground or a, a picnic area type of deal. And um, one day, my brother and I, we were lucky enough to be able to be invited to one, and when we were there, we stumbled across two men who happened to be sitting down in a seat that we needed to sit in. So we asked them to move over 
And this moment we asked them to move over, they had told us that that was the moment that they knew that we were going to be their children. So they worked to make sure that they were able to adopt my brother and die. Second time hearing that story, still love it. Uh, so, Johnny, uh, would you share meeting your family and bringing your kiddos home? What was your story? Sure. So my husband and I, uh, we started looking into expanding our family after we got married in 2004 in Massachusetts, uh, shortly after the judiciary branch allowed us to get married. Um, and we started looking into adoption for a variety of reasons. Um, we, we looked at all the different options of, of having a family, including surrogacy and two public school teachers. We weren't really in a position to afford surrogacy. And, and as we looked into adoption, we, we really liked the idea of, of bringing home, um, a, a child who needed a forever family. Um, so we started actually, we had some friends that had done some international adoptions and we, we, we looked at a couple of agencies and found that those avenues were pretty much closed to us at the time. Uh, it was sort of an, an irony of being in Massachusetts where we were legally ma- married and a lot of the countries that did international adoptions, you basically had to lie to these countries because they wouldn't uh, outright allow adoptions from gay couples. And so it had to be a single parent adoption. And the agencies that we worked with uh, that we looked at wouldn't basically wouldn't lie on the application because we were legally wed in the, in the state. So, um, we also faced a little bit of, I think, some discrimination along those lines. We we were told by a couple of agencies that that um, because private agencies, you know, you write a birth letter, a letter to the birth parent, and they have a good, a big hand in choosing the the parents of their their children. That a lot of birth moms just chose not to go with gay men. We found that that's often quite the opposite is true that a lot of birth mothers who are who are um hoping to put their children up for adoption actually prefer to 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 have gay men adopt because then there's no other mother in the child's life and they get Mm -hmm. to be the mother um so so for a variety of reasons we ended up looking at at the public uh foster care system and um as we learned more and more about it we just really loved the idea of it just seemed like a really really good move for our family um we thought sort of socially consciously it was it was a good thing to do for our community and our our our, the commonwealth of massachusetts and so we enrolled in a class we had to take an eight-week class it was three hours a week um and my husband and i called it the you know scare you away from (laughs) foster care and adoption class i mean they gave you every sort of really scary scenario and at the end of it we were still standing We we were like let's let's do this like we're ready to do this um then there's a home study process and then we basically we 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 had decided that for our first child we wanted to adopt an infant if possible. We're told by a social worker that it would probably be a year or two before before uh, that would happen. So we started very slowly getting ready, the ha- getting the house ready and whatnot. And about six weeks later, we got we got an, an email that our daughter, um, who the, the baby who would become our daughter, was had been born and um, was in foster care at at Boston Medical Center. Um, we went down and, and met her and, and brought her home a couple of days later. Uh, it, it was, it was a whirlwind process. We, we often joke that we did not get the nine months that most families <laughs> get to prepare for this thing. We had, a, we had about 48 hours, um, again, thinking we had two years to prep. Um, and I remember meeting her for the first time and it's just, you know, I look at the pictures of that day and, and we talk with our daughter who, who just turned 11, um, you know, it was it was an amazing, amazing experience. Um, 
about a year and a half later, we started the process again to to expand our family, um, not knowing that our son had already been born. Um, there was a shift in in leadership for the Department of Children and Families that oversees foster care and adoption in the state. And whereas when when Cassie was born, uh, the social workers were allowed to uh, place her in a pre adoptive home, even though she technically wasn't up for adoption. Um, they did what was called concurrent planning, which meant the social workers were allowed to say, I'm pretty sure that this case is going to be a, an adoption case, even though on paper it was reuni- reunification at the time with a biological family. Um, when Amir was born, our son, in 2008, the, um, the commissioner at the time said basically you couldn't pl- place any pr- children in pre-adoptive foster homes until all biological options had been exhausted. So he was actually a year old before um, he was free for adoption and we met him at a year old we got we got the call that he was he was up for adoption and that that he'd been placed with uh matched with us and that was that was a pretty amazing experience too you know to to meet this one-year-old who who physically was very advanced you know running around already and (laughs) and um and it was it was a pretty great day we we met his foster parents and went out to dinner with them and met him and and it's another great day and we you know we we um we celebrate um the uh, the adoption day for our, our kids every year the day that we actually legalized the adoption and my daughter was just telling me the other day after her birthday she's like well my adoption day is coming up in june and it's it's basically another birthday so <laughs> i'm looking forward to that so um and here we are my son is nine and daughter is 11 and it's been amazing what has cultural and racial identity looked like or how has it developed in your family so for me uh we we actually check a lot of boxes in the family my husband is white. I uh, am Asian. My mom was born in Indonesia. My, uh, my daughter is black. And Amir, our son, is Latino, um, half Dominican, half Puerto Rican. Um, and so it's really interesting thinking about uh, racial identity and culture and how that's developed, even just for me as an adult, my husband as a, as a white man. Uh, I I look at my own sort of racial identity as having been eclipsed by my sexual identity growing up and, you know, as much more focused what does it mean to be gay and growing up gay and coming out? And it really wasn't until I went into education and started looking at um, the implications of race on education and the achievement gap and and all of those things that uh, I started thinking about my own identity a little bit more. And then it wasn't until Cassie came into our lives and then we we really did some homework and thought about you know what is it going to mean to to raise a child that has a different race than than either my husband or myself. And um, and I really started to come to terms with my own identity. And so it's it's been I think that what's important about keeping in mind about transracial families is that as as parents, we have to do the work for ourselves before we can provide a safe foundation for our children. You know, even my husband as a white man has has had to grapple with a lot in terms of his privilege and his his um, existence within the power structures in our society in order to really understand what it's like to parent two children of color. Mm. And Nate, I mean, same question. What what has cultural or racial identity looked like, or how has it developed in your own family? It's developed in different ways due to the fact that um, my siblings and I are all identify as African American, and my parents identify as white. And um, it's more so like everything that we grew up doing. I was kind of the first one in the family that had to go through the experience of hey. I'm leading my black siblings and then also having to deal with how to relay things and learn things that my white parents are telling us. So that 
we can all have like a cohesive family unit. So what is a favorite memory that you have of celebrating your family's multiracial or transracial identities? Uh, I think for, for me, uh, when my son was in kindergarten and my daughter was in first grade, they're only a year apart in school, um, he had to do a, a family portrait collage. And, and it was really fun because when he brought it home, it, it had, he had picked four different colors of paper for our skin colors. And, uh, and it was pretty exciting to sort of see him, um, be able to articulate, you know, that, that what our family looked like and that it was still a family in, in that artistic way at five years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, we still have that. This is on kids' minds. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of research that says that, you know, very, very young children recognize race um, and we can we can find power in it, which I think he was doing, which was really exciting. So I always remember that. Sorry, my uh, parents always tell me that um, when I was smaller, um, about, I think, maybe five or six years old, I'd gone into school and it was, uh, do a family collage, and I had put that um, what had made up my family and what I thought made up me, and I put Irish, and I'd gone in and handed this paper in, and the teacher was like, oh, I think you got this incorrect. And my parents had to come in and explain that because he had two uh, my parents, he thought that they had made up him as well, and that he thought that he was part Irish. So they always keep that little picture at home and always keep <laughs> it. Yeah, at one point, I, I thought that I was Irish. <laughs> so, Well, both of your families currently attend, or, or Nate growing up, attended Family Week in Provincetown. Why is an event or, or a space like this in this community of LGBTQ families important to you and your family? What has it been like being around other LGBTQ families? And then kind of teasing that out even a little bit more, spaces that are LGBTQ, multiracial, adoptive family spaces uh, at Family Week or beyond? How are those spaces even different than just sort of broader LGBTQ spaces? Our our first year at Family Week was amazing. You know, I think our kids were three and two at the time, maybe even two and one. I have to check the dates. Um, but what what was really amazing for us was um, was certainly, you know, being a part of the majority for once in terms of our family structure and I think looking around and seeing such a vast uh, diversity racially too was really important. Um, I I think that as 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 the many intersections of all of our identities exist, I'm I, I'm constantly trying to be aware of for my children in particular the ways in which my my um, sexual identity as a gay man is something that I can choose to share or not share, and and that my racial identity is not is something that I can choose to share that it's something that people see when they, they look at me and, um, and that that's true for my kids too. And so something that was just kind of an amazing realization at family week, our first year was, was seeing um, our kids as, as several, you know, that first year, several dozen um, kids of color being raised by LGBT families and just thinking, you know what, in 20 years, these kids are going to, going to do some amazing work in this country um and and really shift the 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 conversation around race and identity um just because of the 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 diversity in which they're growing up and um and i thought that family week was was a really great space for them to to nurture that side of them and and um and understand that they're they're not alone yeah i'm gonna piggyback off of that like the feel that we're not alone 
I've been going to family league for almost 20 years now. Um, the thing that keeps drawing me back is that I know that there's like a sense of community even outside of the community that I have at home and um, in other places. It's like, oh, I know no matter what that I have a group of friends that identify uh, with the same family structures I do and that there's no real explanation that needs to be given because there are people out there that understand what we're going through. So even the breakdown of like going into the smaller groups as well, I used to um, run the workshops um, at, at Family Week with Collage doing um, race and different things within the family because I knew that having that breakdown of a group is instrumental to the growth of us as um, youth of LGBTQ. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is wonderful and uh, it's really great to hear that there can be really positive spaces, but LGBTQ, the LGBTQ family community we know is not monolithic and it's not perfect. So has the LGBTQ community ever disappointed you or let you and your family down in the past? I know that for us, there was definitely instances in the sense of because we were um, foster children and then we were adopted through um, the process of the public system that people kind of look negatively on our family versus getting a child maybe from out of um, the nation or being able to choose the sense of what their baby could be like through donor and submission. So they kind of uh, viewed our family as like, oh, you only went this route and you didn't do the extra expensive way. Yeah, I think we've had similar experiences to Nate. It uh, it comes out in these microaggressions of, uh, you know, let me guess, where are the kids from? Ethiopia, you know, and it's like, nope, they're from Boston and Worcester and Massachusetts. And and there there sometimes has been a sense of, you know, like like that that's uh, not as as posh as, you know, going the surrogacy route or international adoption or even private adoption. Um, That's that's been tough. I think that that when um just just a lack of awareness i think around how some of those questions come out and um and i think just on a uh going off of what i was saying earlier about you know doing the work on our own identity um as parents i think that that, that i i definitely have had conversations with with some white lgbt parents who who have i i i don't believe have done the actual work to understand what does it mean to be a white person in this country at this time and what is my white identity and what is my racial identity as a white person? And, and I think it's, it's really challenging to, um, to long-term provide that, that positive racial identity for children of color when, when the parents haven't, haven't really sort of assessed where they are, particularly in in terms of the power dynamic. Mm, That's really, that is really interesting that you hear, or I hear, discussions about how expensive many or some of the routes to forming a family are and to hear that there's almost maybe a one-upmanship of my mm-hmm. child was this expensive or it took mm-hmm. this long uh so that's that's really interesting yeah and and i think going on that too it's it's i i have to admit that it's sometimes hard for for lgbt friends even heterosexual friends who who go to tremendous lengths for ivf for uh surrogacy and and spend a lot of money on these things um 
and 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 it's hard to reconcile as a parent who built his family with through foster care um just to hear how much money is being spent when there are these kids that need families you know there there's 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 so many kids out there that need that need families when our community is is already as you said in your statistics building their families through adoption in, in such increased numbers compared to the general population. I wish there were more who who explored foster care. I think that these these kids are amazing. You know, it's it's very rare that you get those TV movie of the week versions of foster care uh, kids. They're 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 pretty awesome. They want to be loved, um, and they're ready for adoption. You know, they're they're available. So. Johnny, your family got some media attention a couple years ago because of a Black Lives Matter sign that you had in your yard. And then through that experience, you came out and you spoke a fair amount and, and you had put on your blog about your, how your family discusses race, police violence, activism, discrimination. Has that changed recently at all? I Yeah, I think so. So we, um, right, so we put up a, a Black Lives Matter sign. I think um, it was, it was a, a summer where... We just we couldn't do it anymore, you know. Like the the the, the news reports were were um, just so so frequent about um, these unarmed African American people being killed in this country by police, um, and so we put the sign up, and and uh, anonymous complaint from a neighbor came through the town, and we live in a predominantly white town in a suburb of Boston, and um, and I immediately. You know, I, I told my husband we're moving. <laughs> this is, I don't want to deal with this. Um, my daughter actually is interesting. That she was, I think, eight at the time. Um, she, the first question she said was, was, was it a white person that sent that letter? And I said, I don't know, but I'm assuming it is. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that it was interesting having conversations with with both kids around it because we've we have always tried to engage them in conversations around race and identity openly uh in age-appropriate ways so i remember thinking about the the lion king and watching the lion king with with our kids and and how um you know a lot of the sort of villainous creatures in that film the hyenas have have what we would call a african-american vernacular in in the film and and just having conversations with them at like two three years old about you know isn't that silly that they that the you know the only people that that sound like um, black people as we see in movies are the bad guys in this movie. You know, they, they, black people aren't bad, you know? And um, so we'd always had those conversations early on. And so when, when stuff started to come to a head in our town with uh, that Black Lives Matter um, and the media was coming out, it, it was it was pretty amazing for us to hear our eight and seven-year-old kids um, articulating why this stuff matters and why it was important to have that sign out there. Um, and, you know, as they've matured, we've matured the conversation and, and um, and that's been really, really great for us. And Nate, were there or are there conversations around uh, race and, and violence and discrimination and activism in your family? Yes, all the time. Um, ever since we were really small, our parents always let us know that, hey, you're equal to everyone, but you may not be treated as well as you should be. So we were always introduced to uh, never like they never let us hear like know that we couldn't do something we were always allowed to explore in different worlds but we were always told like hey if you come across the situation it may happen and hopefully it should not but it is and we were always kind of prepared for everything that we went into um and as we because both of my parents one's an occupational therapist and the other's um a math professor so they were both 
um, always educating us on different ways of, hey, we come into this situation, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it was a predominant talk we had ever since we were small. And if I can just add in, yeah. I, I think that that's one of the things that's different in transracial families um, that's different from white families is, uh, you know, it, it is a privilege, I think, in white families mm-hmm. that they can choose to have those conversations or not. And it's not a privilege in our families. We, mm-hmm. It is it is um, an imperative conversation that we have and that we, we're constantly talking about it in our families. You know, I do a lot of work with educators around racial identity and how it, race and racism affects education. And, you know, we'll, we'll often ask people in the class, you know, when was the last time you had a conversation explicitly about race? And, and inevitably the white folks in the class are, I really can't remember. And they have to, they're racking their brain and, and the people of color in the class are like, this morning, <laughs> you know, um, and so it, it is. It's, it's a reality of our family, and it's it's you know we we use the analogy of sort of left-handed, right-handed in the classes I teach. Um, that being left-handed is a little more challenging in this world. You have to find special scissors, and you have to think about where you're sitting at dinner time. And um, it doesn't mean that you're less than a right-handed person. It doesn't mean that you can you can be have a less fulfilling life. It just means you have to work a little harder. Uh, and that's that's really the reality of, of LGBT folks in this country and of people of color. I just have one last sort of wrap up moment or question for you uh, for anybody who maybe is listening to the podcast that is new to the foster care public adoption journey or is considering it or just people who are can are part of forming a transracial adoptive family. Do you have any final thoughts or advice for them as they're maybe early or starting this journey? I, I think for me, I would just say, uh, don't be afraid of it. It's, uh, it's, it's an awesome ride and our, our, our family is amazing and, and, and lean into the discomfort, you know, particularly if, uh, if, if the family is, is, you know, a white, white parented family, for example, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not possible. And, and I know plenty of white parents who have adopted transracially who are doing amazing things. My husband is one of them. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, just lean into this comfort and, and the way you get comfortable with, with things that are uncomfortable is that you practice them. You know, I, mm-hmm. I always, with my students, even I use the analogy of, you know, if you wanted to get better at shooting a hoop in basketball, the the thing not to do is not play basketball, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with, with having conversations about race and identity and, and culture. Um, if, if those things are uncomfortable, the, the thing to do to get better at them is, is to just practice them and, and have those conversations, particularly with your, your loved ones. Yeah. Nate, I mean, same question, but maybe also if you wanted to open it up to maybe if we have anybody who is themselves an adoptee listening as well. It was definitely a life-changing experience. It opened my eyes to a number of different things that I don't think I would have necessarily gotten to experience or like do, I guess. Um, and it just made me have to, as I've grown up, I have had to research more and learn more about how my adoption was and different things that went into it and um, I'm learning about the different things that go into my genetic makeup and family structures. So as I've gotten older, it kind of, it, I thought it was simple at first. And as I've gotten older, I've learned more and more that go into it. So it is opening up my eyes to um, the world that I came from and that I'm a part of and how everything comes together. 
my brother and I, we both have the same family, um, biological family. So we, um, a lot of the research is done together and we learn about it together. And our parents, they always tell us that they're never going to stop us or hold us back from wanting to explore that. They always just tell us that we are, we're a family first. And I always reiterate the same thing that this is my family and anything else is just kind of extra. Thank you both so much. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate both of you being here and joining me for this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you. Again, thank you for joining us today. This podcast is brought to you by the PRX Podcast Garage. Their community hours program gives studio time and training to Boston nonprofits developing a podcast. Learn more at podcastgarage.org. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Outspoken Voices. You can find Outspoken Voices on our website, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Family Equality Council at familyequality.org and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Family Equality. Until next time, remember that love, justice, family, and equality is what brings our families together.